0: You are listening to Natural Born Alchemists.
1: Welcome to episode number 254 of the Natural Born Alchemists podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Last week's episode was called The Mind of Data. And it was the first part of a little trilogy. And this episode is going to be the second part, and it's called The Mind of Plants. Plants are not passive, senseless objects, in my opinion. They use the language of fragrances to communicate above and below ground, and they engage in lively relationships with their environment and peers. Not only do they support relatives, harass strangers, make alliances, but they also learn from experience and remember past events. Underground, they form extensive root and fungal networks to exchange nutrients and information, an internet of plant communities of unimaginable size. What are the consequences of reimagining? The rights of plants. Do they deserve more respect? A recent amendment to the Swiss constitution asserts that plants have dignity. Is dignity for plants an absurd concept? Florian Kochlin thinks not. Florian Kochlix holds a degree in chemistry and a degree in biology and chemistry education. And I will now play her TEDx talk, Tomatoes Talk, Birch Trees Learn, Do Plants Have Dignity? And this talk will be followed by some comments from anthropologist Jeremy Narby, Bioneers founder Ken Aus- Ausubel, and uh, legend Terence McKenna. But first, here's Florian.
2: There have been great communicators here at TEDx Zurich but the best one of them all never has been on the stage yet. And that's not me, but this lovely little tomato plant. (laughs) So I want to tell you about the plant's amazing communication and networking skills, and then look at possible consequences. The plant communicates with fragrances. So when a caterpillar attacks a leaf, the plant starts to produce leaf toxins and at the same time she releases a cloud of fragrances to warn the neighboring tomatoes so they can too start with their defense. The fragrances are methyl jasminates, a scent well known in the perfume industry, so the female researchers were told not to use Chanel 5 because it would have confused the tomatoes. For us It's a lovely scent, but for the tomatoes, it means attention, predators are attacking. (laughs) A little later on, this tomato produces different scents, and this time it is to attract beneficial insects for her defense. And the amazing thing is that the Tomato not only knows that she is being attacked, but exactly who is attacking her. If she is attacked by spider mites, she produces a fragrance cocktail to attract predatory mites, they eat the spider mites. But if she is attacked by caterpillars, she produces a slightly different cocktail of fragrances to attract parasitic wasps. But how does the tomato plant know who is attacking her? She can identify the saliva. So the plant tastes the saliva of the insect and then produces a fragrance to attract the right bodyguard. What a great feat of communication. Another example. When apple trees are attacked or infested, by caterpillars, such as the small winter moth, they release a fragrance cocktail to attract great tit birds. The birds smell the SOS signals of the attacked apple tree and thus find themselves a fat catch of caterpillars. I was fascinated by this world of plants, and I started a career as an author. I visited many researchers and experts all through Europe, and also in India, Kenya, and uh, Egypt, and of course also in Basel, my hometown. The researchers told me that all plants communicate with fragrances. They warn each other of a coming danger, they allure beneficial insects, they send out SOS signals, they even coordinate the behavior among themselves. And their vocabulary is immense. So far, about a 1,000 fragrance compounds have been identified, five to ten of which are common to all plants. Well, plants can do more. They can perceive about 20 environmental signals, more than we humans. Like humans, they can respond to smell, taste, touch, sight, and sound. And like birds, they sense electromagnetic waves. And under the ground, there's a communication too. If you look at a forest, you see individual trees, an oak tree, a fir, a birch tree. But if you look underground, you see that the roots of the trees connect with fungi to build a huge, vast, dynamic net, a net called mycorrhiza, which means fungi, roots, and growth. In science, this net is referred to as the www the wood wide web instead of the world wide web. <laughs> also, most non-forest plants build mycorrhiza nets with fungi not visible for us, and research has shown that plants even exchange nutrients among themselves within the mycorrhiza net. So, in good mi- uh, mixed cultures. As often seen in traditional agriculture, plants could build something like a dynamic underground marketplace where plants with long roots contribute water to the net, other ones nitrogen or phosphate or sugar compounds. So it's a constant give and take within the plant community. And sometimes it's a battle too. For example, marigolds, they sweat a toxic substance through the roots into the net to impede other plants to grow. And as new studies shown, the plants even exchange information through this net. So it's like an internet under our feet. Knowing all this, when I'm walking through a forest, Uh, There is a constant whispering and murmuring, a whispering of fragrances I do not understand. And under my feet, there is a constant exchange of nutrients and information. And knowing all this gives me a completely different feeling. It's not me here, isolated, and tree, and tree, and tree. But it's the strong feeling that I'm too connected in this intricate web of life all around me. Plants can do more. They remember past events and learn from experience. Well, learning is a fuzzy concept. One definition goes that learning occurs when a living being remembers a past event and can change later on its behavior accordingly. Well, this tomato plant can do exactly that. When attacked by a caterpillar, she starts to produce leaf toxins, we already know. But the second time, a few days later, she can produce them much faster and more efficiently. So she remembered the first attack and learned how to deal with it in a better way. Most plants, perhaps all plants, can do that. Birch trees were found to remember a past event for as long as four years. I have trouble remembering something for four days, and it's getting worse. But four years? Well, to sum up, plants are by no means passive living automatons, always reacting in the same way and following their genetic program. While this notion is still held within the scientific community, the contrary is true. Plants communicate above and below ground, they engage in lively relationships with their peers and environment, they harass others, they build alliances, they remember, they learn. And some scientists even think they're intelligent. And philosophically speaking, we could say, a plant is not an object, a it but rather a sensitive living being, a she. So, the more we know, the more our our image of the plant is turned upside down. question is, what are the implications of these new insights? I see mainly two. First, Aren't we on the wrong track with agriculture? Shouldn't we use these insights for a better agro system? We could warn plants with fragrances of a coming attack, help them build mycorrhiza nets, um, boost their immune system, develop good mixed cultures, or with wildflowers, lure beneficial insects into the fields. So it's the plants themselves that offers a great hope for the future if we observe them carefully and help them develop their skills. But by growing them in monocultures, we deprive them of the social context and we utterly neglect their communication skills. What about our relationship with plants? Does it matter? I had ample opportunity to discuss this question in Switzerland because Switzerland is the only country worldwide whose constitution maintains that the dignity of living beings has to be respected. Plants are living beings, so they have a dignity, but what does it mean? The Swiss government came to the Federal Ethics Committee on Non-Human Biotechnology, of which I was a member, and ask us to clarify the meaning of dignity in regard to plants. Difficult. But dignity could be a sign, a metaphor, that plants have a value of their own, independent of human interests. So, if we look at plants as living automatons, following a set program and only satisfying our interest and demands, such a notion would be absurd, it doesn't make sense. But if we look at plants as excellent networkers, even capable of subjective perceptions, having a life of their own, then it makes sense to say, yes, they have dignity. So, you know, when we look at the animals, for for a long time, animals were regarded as soulless machines, too, and it was just in the last few decades that they escaped this mechanistic trap. And today, today, society agrees, yes, animals have at least some dignity. With plants, we are miles away from this point. So in the ethics committee, we concentrated on the question whether we should respect plants out of, for their own sake, independent of their usefulness. That we could call dignity. Well, in the end, we agreed on one point um, plants should not be harmed in an arbitrary way. Arbitrary injury or destruction of a plant is a violation of their dignity. But we couldn't agree on the arbitrary. For some, It meant the senseless picking of a roadside dandelion, for others, among them, the total and massive industrialization of plants. So, after four years of discussion, in 2008 it was, we published a report, and soon afterwards, we received the IG Nobel Prize for this report. IG stands for ignoble, it's a prize for particular ridiculous research (laughs) which makes people laugh and then later on think. We were proud to receive this prize and a member of our commission flew to Harvard to get it. But that is just the very very beginning. I'm convinced that we urgently need some limit against their total industrialization. That we, that we as humans have some responsibility toward plants. And of course, it doesn't mean that we should not eat, cut, grow, mow, or graft plants or do research with them. That is not the point. Similarly, giving animals some dignity didn't mean we take them out of the food chain or we forbid forbid animal research. But in my view, some forms of genetic engineering, not all, violate their dignity. For example, manipulations to render plants sterile for mere commercial interests, or patents on plants violate their dignity. Furthermore, plants should have some degree of independence regarding their adaptation and uh, propagation, as well as the survival of their own species. After having discussed dignity for such a long time, I came to love this expression. It's more than respect or value. If I would ask you for more respect for this tomato plant, nobody would bother or object. But dignity dignity is a provocation, and that is good. And maybe, maybe in a few years we will all laugh together, as predicted by the IG Nobel Prize, and it then will be a laugh about our arrogance as humans. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much.
1: Scientists are starting to talk like shamans. Shamans are starting to talk like scientists.
3: Over the past two decades there's been a revolution in vegetal biology. Science now shows that plants appear to be sentient beings. They perceive light, smell, water, touch, They can learn, remember, and communicate. They exhibit the traits that we associate with personhood. Experimental science has confirmed that plants can see when you're standing next to them and the color of your shirt. They don't have eyes, but they have the same photoreceptor proteins all over their bodies that humans have at the back of the retina. A plant may not have a brain, but it acts like a brain. They translate information into electrical chemical signals in their cells, identical to the ones used by our own neurons. The word neuron comes from the Greek for vegetal fiber. Neurons actually look like the cut of the inside of a plant. What shamans and indigenous cultures have long been saying is increasingly confirmed in scientific research. There are persons in these other beings with intelligence, intentions, and consciousness.
4: Somehow this concept of connectivity is intimately linked to the concept of complexity. And so really what I'm saying is that the universe is getting its act together. It's connecting the dots. It's bringing everything into co-relationship with everything else, and somehow it does this through the production of consciousness. Consciousness is this integrative function in biology which takes data, which may appear profoundly unrelated, and in fact brings it into some kind of a congruent relationship. We say an organism coordinates a point of view Well, in a way, what's happening over time is that the universe is coordinating a point of view. And as it does this, it becomes somehow more aware, more self-conscious, more uh, being-like and less thing-like. You could almost say that nature abhors habit and so it seeks the novel by uh, producing various kinds of phenomena at every level in biology, chemistry, and society. And so there really is a purpose to the universe. Its purpose is this state of hyper-complexification in which all of its points become related to each other, become what mathematicians call cotangent. it gives the universe the feeling of being imbued with a caring presence. Well, the great watershed difference between the archaic understanding and what is called scientific materialism, is the archaic mind understood, in fact perceived, that nature is conscious, nature is alive, nature is an organism full of intent, Uh, the goal of the archaic mind is to connect with, communicate with, and align itself to this greater Gaian holism, which is sometimes called nature, the great spirit, the realm of the ancestors. But this is what the archaic uh, mind understood and was comfortable with. And in fact, it is true. Our own uh, decision to view the universe as dead, as inanimate as unintelligent allowed us permitted us to dissect it use it and uh, and uh, deny its validity outside of human purpose. Now the consequences of living like that is coming back to haunt us. You know, we have almost destroyed our home. We have almost cut the earth from beneath our own feet. So this impulse toward the and the and the archaic is uh, a survival instinct at this point. We must give Uh, reverence and credence to nature and nature's methods because no other methods will allow us to work our way out of the present mess we're in Uh, high temperature, high energy resource extraction commodification uh, mega agriculture we're at the end of the rope for these things so the archaic holds answers but it only holds answers if we are willing to think of the universe as a living intelligent entity in with which we are in partnership not set against but that in fact we are a part of uh, a morphogenetic intent and an unfolding reality that is larger than human understanding Imagine larger than human understanding. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Florian Kochlin’s talk was given at a TEDx event using the TED conference format, but independently organized by a local community. You can learn more at ted.com forward slash TEDx. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, you are welcome to leave a nice review on iTunes. Here's one I got. Not really about alchemy. It's well done and the audio quality is good, but it should be titled Natural Born Psychedelic User, not Alchemist. More alchemy, please. Pink Cup of Ashes. Well, thank you, Pink Cup of Ashes. But I like to think that this podcast is about alchemy. Because uh, that's uh, the theme, I I think... Uh, maybe not always about practical alchemy. In fact, there's not that many episodes about practical alchemy, but a hell of a lot of episodes on spiritual alchemy. And I also consider psychedelics to be, in a sense, an archetype of the stone, what the alchemical stone uh, is supposed to be able to do. And uh, the name "natural Ball alchemist," I think, is very fitting for this. Podcast. It's also a play on the excellent film Natural Born Killers. And uh, it's like, you know, that's a dark film. It's about murdering people. But if you've seen Natural Born Killers, you might remember that those serial killers in that film, the only time they felt regret about killing somebody was when they killed a shaman an indigenous shaman because he was trying to heal them from their demons. So that stuck in my mind and that's why it's called Nachelborn Alchemist. So that's a bit of a background information about the name. Uh, Anyway, you can also leave a nice review on iTunes. Please do. Please follow the podcast in social media. You can also become a patron if you want to support my work financially. Even a buck or two a month helps a lot. And if you want to be convinced about becoming a patron, why don't you listen to this? I think you already know that this podcast is the cat's pajamas. That when listening to this podcast you feel totally lit. That you cannot deny that it is legit. The bees knees gravy noodles packed peachy. Sometimes even a complete clam slam. Now if you feel it as I do, why don't you become a patron and support the podcast? Go to patreon.com forward slash natural born alchemist. Stay woke, support. If we don't take care of this planet and all its plants and wildlife, it will soon be gone. So to close this episode, here is the song Gone Tomorrow by The Gentlemen's Anti-Temperance League and the songs from their album Masquerade. Go to thegatl.com to check out their music. Next Sunday, we are finishing this Mind Trilogy with an episode called The Mind of the Universe. And in that one, I will be joined by author Christopher M. Bach, PhD. We will be discussing his book LSD and The Mind of the Universe. See you all in a week. Freedom is in the mind.